Tropical storm Adalia continues to pummel parts of North Carolina with high winds and a storm surge. Meanwhile, thousands of people on Florida's west coast try to recover after Adalia left their roofs and walls shredded and left flood water waist high around their homes. It's Thursday, August 31st, and this is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, the pharmaceutical industry has long said that any attempt to control drug prices would mean disaster for their research and development, but the research doesn't back that up. And more than 90,000 people packed a Nebraska football stadium last night to watch college women play a volleyball match. We're at a place now where we're reevaluating how much we value women's sports. And I think seeing things like this, if you build it, they will come. It was a world-setting, record-setting event. That story and the forecast are coming up. It's 4.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Communities across the southeast are assessing the damage inflicted by hurricane and now tropical storm Idalia, which moved off the Atlantic coast earlier today. As NPR's Bobby Allen reports, coastal communities along Florida's Big Bend region have been decimated. Here in the small fishing town of Horseshoe Beach, signs of devastation are everywhere. Homes torn off their foundations, trucks floating in a canal, fishing docks flipped upside down. Driving along the muddy roads on his ATV, longtime resident Dennis Miller looked at a home the storm ripped to shreds. This is a lot worse than Irene was. It's going to take us a while to recover. We'll come back. It'll be slow, but we'll, we'll make it back in. <laughs> Miller says he's going to pitch in and help state and federal aid workers rebuild the community. He's happy no lives were lost here, but he says fully springing back will be a years-long process. Bobby Allen, NPR News, Horseshoe Beach, Florida. A reporter for the Marion County Record, the Kansas newsroom raided by police on August 11th, is suing the city's police chief. NPR's Danielle Kay reports it's the first federal lawsuit filed in connection with the raid. The police department in Marion, Kansas, seized computers, phones, and reporting materials from the Marion County Record newsroom and its publisher's home. They cited suspected identity theft as the reason for the raid. The incident sparked widespread condemnation as an illegal press freedom violation. Reporter Deb Groover has filed suit alleging emotional distress and physical injury due to the raid and violations of her constitutional rights. Marion Police Chief Gideon Cody allegedly snatched Groover's personal cell phone despite, quote, no factual basis to do so. Authorities have since returned the equipment seized by police. Bernie Rhodes, the record's attorney, says the newspaper itself will also file a lawsuit over damages from the raid. Danielle Kay, NPR News. The U.S., the U.K., South Korea and Japan are urging North Korea to call off weapons talks with Russia. The White House says it has intelligence that Russia's Vladimir Putin and North Korea's Kim Jong-un have had a correspondence as Russia seeks weapons from its allies to fight Ukraine. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby tells NPR the U.S. is not without leverage. Of course, we'll continue to work with our U.N. allies and partners uh, in terms of additional sanctions should they be necessary. There is leverage, economic leverage that can be applied to North Korea. But ultimately, North Korea has got to make the right decision here, which is not to make it easier for Putin to kill innocent Ukrainian people. The U.S. and its allies say any Russian-Northern Korean arms deals would violate U.N. Security Council resolutions prohibiting all countries from buying or obtaining any arms from Pyongyang. Wall Street at the close, the Dow down 169 points, the Nasdaq up 15. This is NPR.
And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Federal prosecutors are charging a former MBTA police sergeant with helping a fellow officer cover up an assault on a man without a home. The incident was at a Red Line T station five years ago. As WBR's Walter Wuthman reports, the new charges resurrect a controversial case that has pit local law enforcement agencies against each other. The U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts says former Sergeant David Finnerty filed false reports to cover for his subordinate who beat up a man at the Ashmont station. This comes after Suffolk County prosecutors dropped a similar case against him last year. Finnerty's defense attorney Brad Bailey says the case should have ended there. I have every confidence that he will likewise be cleared and found innocent of these charges when the full and complete truth comes out. Transit police officials welcome the new charges against their former officer. In a statement, Chief Kenneth Green called the original decision to drop the case, quote, inconceivable. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. As many as 250 members of the Massachusetts National Guard will help provide services and emergency shelters in the state as of next week. Governor Moore Healy activated the Guard today in the wake of recent concerns about families in the state shelter system. Last week, WBUR reported that more than 10 percent of those households were placed in hotels and motels that do not have the proper support staff and services to coordinate food, transportation, and medical care. The Sumner Tunnel in Boston is set to reopen tomorrow morning after a two-month shutdown, and that means the MBTA's blue line will no longer be free. Blue Line commuters have had a free ride since early July when the tunnel from East Boston to downtown closed as part of the Sumner's restoration project. As of tomorrow, fares and parking rates will be back to normal. 74 degrees in the Boston area, pretty gorgeous out there right now. Clear skies tonight, dry conditions. Temperatures should fall to the mid-50s, a little bit chilly overnight tonight. Then tomorrow, sunshine's back with highs in the mid-70s. That's where it is right now in the Boston area, 74 degrees at 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Senator Mitch McConnell's freeze on camera in Kentucky this week was a reminder of a reality about American politics. President Biden is the oldest president ever at 80 years old. The leading Republican presidential candidate, Donald Trump, is 77. And while the average age in Congress dropped slightly this year, it is still one of the oldest in modern history. Recently, Democrats and Republicans have both been forced to confront health issues and other limitations in aging politicians. NPR's Kelsey Snell has this report. This week, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell appeared to freeze involuntarily at a public event. Last month, the 81-year-old Kentucky Republican suffered an extended incident during a press conference in the Capitol. It's been good bipartisan cooperation and a string of... uh, McConnell's aides downplayed his health concerns after both incidents. But public moments like these draw new attention to the reality that the median age in Congress is decades, often generations, older than the people they represent. That disconnect is also at the heart of viral moments where older lawmakers seem completely out of touch. Some even admit it, like 72-year-old Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, who is famous for carrying an ancient flip phone. Remember, everybody... Not very tech-oriented. 
here it is. The age and health of lawmakers is a public issue beyond those viral moments. Democrats were temporarily unable to advance scores of judicial nominations this year because Dianne Feinstein, the 90-year-old California senator, was suffering from health setbacks. Kevin Munger teaches political science at Penn State University. He says ailing health and lagging technological expertise are just part of the problem. There's just no way for people in older generations who experienced the early part of their life cycle in a very different time period to understand where young people are coming from. Americans are generally living and working longer, but Munger says young voters in particular are increasingly interested in electing people who look like them and share their experience of the world. And new members elected in recent years are more diverse, but incumbents are different. Last year, 98% of them won re-election. These days, because of the polarization, seats are absolutely Safe. That's Alan Lickman, a history professor at American University in Washington. He says elections are essentially decided in primaries now, where parties have little or no incentive to challenge their own members. For McConnell, who assumed office in 1985, and other long-serving members, that means... Essentially being able to sit in those seats as long as they wanted. Incumbents have other huge advantages, like access to big donor bases, relationships in Washington and in their home states, plus staff and experience. When it comes down to it, if you're going to vote on someone, you'll be like, well, I would prefer a younger candidate, but if I have two old candidates, I'm going to vote for my party candidate. That's Jennifer Wallach, a professor at Michigan State University. She and her research partner studied why older people are overrepresented in government. They found that people talk about concerns with age in politics. They say they want younger representation in surveys. But at the polls, older politicians keep winning. People are much more going to choose on candidate promises and party and ideology than age. That's true for both parties. Kevin Munger says this moment of public attention to age in politics really does create an opportunity. It might mean that the institutions of government that were developed at a time period when most people died by the age of 60 just are not appropriate for our current and better reality that we've created. The reality now is that politicians are holding on to seats as long as they can. Kelsey Snell, NPR News, Washington. This week, the Biden administration announced a historic milestone for Medicare. For the first time, the health program for seniors is starting to negotiate drug prices. Up first, 10 medications that treat conditions like diabetes and rheumatoid arthritis. But the pharmaceutical industry opposes these negotiations, arguing that lower Medicare drug prices would put a huge dent in companies' ability to find new treatments. NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin has been looking into whether that is true. Hey, Sydney. Hi, Mary Louise. Okay, so the basic question here, how would lower Medicare prices affect drug makers' bottom lines? So the fact that there are eight lawsuits to keep negotiation from happening really tells you that it's will probably cut into how much money drug makers can make. Mm. The entire U.S. healthcare system spent around $600 billion on drugs in 2021, and Medicare Part D, which covers drugs, accounted for about a third of that. When we look at just these first 10 drugs up for negotiation, they cost Medicare $50 billion last year. And I should note, however, that all these dollar figures don't reflect rebates drug makers pay Medicare and private insurers. That said, even though these are just 10 drugs out of the thousands that 
that Medicare pays for, it's a huge chunk of money to the program and a pretty significant chunk of drug spending in the U.S. It sounds like the, the basic answer to that basic question is yes, then. Lower prices would affect mm -hmm. pharmaceutical company revenue. What would that mean for research? So it could mean that drug companies will spend less on R&D, but it isn't necessarily the doomsday scenario the industry predicts. People I spoke to pointed out that there is a correlation between revenue and R&D. Companies tend to spend the same proportion of it year after year. So if there's less revenue coming in, there's likely to be less money going toward research. But what drug companies spend on research isn't completely tied to how many new drugs get discovered. Here's Saad Omer, Dean of the O'Donnell School of Public Health at UT Southwestern in Dallas. A lot of these discoveries come from taxpayer investments in academic research and small startups. And while drug companies do spend money doing crucial clinical trials later on, overall, he says it's just too simplistic to say that without today's high prices, we won't have tomorrow's cures. Okay, so could all of this, these negotiations, push drug makers to shift how they spend their money? Like, uh, I don't know, uh, spending less on lobbyists or less on drug ads on TV? It's a good question because drug companies spend a lot of money on TV ads and things like stock buybacks and dividends. In fact, studies have found that often they spend more on those things than they spend on R&D. But it's possible they might spend their research money more wisely. So for so long, the industry's pricing power has meant there wasn't as much need to rein it in. Richard Evans, a pharmaceutical industry veteran who runs SSR Health, says being pickier about which experimental drugs get to move into expensive human clinical trials would be a good place to start. When you go into humans, your spending goes up exponentially, and you should only be putting the best molecule that you can get your hands on into humans, whether you discovered it or not. And the problem is the quality of things you're going into human testing is, is not as good as it should be. So he says changing that could be a silver lining for the industry. Okay, so bottom line on the question we began with, whether these negotiations will dent the pharmaceutical industry's ability to find new treatments. Well, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office looked at the expected effect of the law. It estimated that it would only mean 13 of the 1,300 new drugs expected over the next three decades would not make it to market. Of course, which 13 is kind of the iffy part, right? Is it going to be a drug that cures cancer, or are they all just going to be tiny little tweaks on existing old drugs with new names and bigger price tags? And we don't know. But overall, the CBO's expectation is that this will have only a modest effect on drug development. Thank you, Sydney. You bet. And PR's Sydney Lupkin. In case you've got room for one more podcast in your queue, after you've downloaded ours, of course, here's a new option. It's from a group of comedic up-and-comers you might have heard of. Seth Meyers, John Oliver, Stephen Colbert, and the Jimmies, Fallon and Kimmel. The late-night hosts have banded together to do a podcast for Spotify, all in support of their staffs, who've been out of work for nearly five months now since the start of the writer's strike. NPR's Andrew Limbong has more. The show is called Strike Force 5. What would happen if five of America's top 11 most beloved talk show hosts all talked on top of each other for an hour? The first episode has Jimmy Kimmel back to his radio roots. As we mentioned, we, we are the Strike Force 5. With the other guys joining in on bits and banter about everything from dropping your kids off at college to run-ins with even more famous people and an extended bit on pants. I have Anastasio Somoza's pants. 
Do you know who he was? The, the, the brutal dictator of Nicaragua who was deposed by the Sandinista in the late 70s? Do you know who I'm talking about here? Yes, tell the story slowly. Don't miss anything out. <laughs> no, one outbid, no, one, no one outbid you on this? My mom Let's had them. According to the premiere episode, the late night hosts started hopping on a Zoom call regularly in the run-up to the writer strike and decided to do a podcast with proceeds going to their employees while they're out of work and not getting paid. Here's Seth Myers. Hey, I also want to say while we're uh, talking about our staffs over the course of this podcast, because you know, we have uh, researchers, producers, writers, all these people. Uh, I think you're really going to feel their absence. Bill Carter, former New York Times TV reporter, author of two books on late night and current dues paying member of the WGA, says the show makes sense considering talk show hosts' talents are well suited for podcasting. And they also get along pretty well, which is kind of atypical for the history of late night. Something John Oliver brings up in the podcast. Would, would it be fair to say that in 2008, the host didn't get along quite as well as we do? I know it's an incredibly low bar, but that was a sequence of dying marriages. Back in the 2007-2008 writer's strike, the late night shows found their own ways to support their staff. Here's Bill Carter again. Letterman owned his own show. So he made a separate deal with the writers, and that got him back on the air. It's the uh, category tonight, Demands of the Striking Writers. Oh. Demands of the Striking WGA Writers. And here now... And once he was back on the air, the other late night guys were like, hey, you know, this is nuts. Why is he on the air and we're not? And with the WGA's blessing, those shows came back without writers as a way of helping keep afloat the rest of the staff. Strike Force 5 is slated for 12 episodes, but it's anybody's guess how long the writer strike will continue. Andrew Limbong, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us today. It was a mixed show on Wall Street for this final trading day of the month. The Dow dropped a half percent, S&P fell less than two-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq gained a little bit of ground. It was up a tenth of a percent. This has been the worst month of the year for the Nasdaq. More news coming up. WBUR supporters include Lesley University. Put your creativity to work with a fine arts degree from Lesley University. Invest in your passion at lesley.edu. A high surf advisory is in effect until 8 tonight for the Cape and Islands and much of the south coast. The National Weather Service says large waves will make swimming and surfing dangerous. They could also lead to localized beach erosion. Today's advisory comes on the 69th anniversary of Hurricane Carol. Carol made landfall in Old Saybrook, Connecticut in 1954 as a Category 3 hurricane. It brought a storm surge of more than 14 feet to New Bedford and left Providence in about 12 feet of water. Hurricane Carol also hit Block Island, Rhode Island, with its strongest wind ever, a gust of 135 miles an hour. Again, that was 69 years ago today. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. And Cambridge Arts, presenting Open Studios September 9th and 10th. See and shop the creativity that is Cambridge. CambridgeArtsCouncil.org. Well, August sure knows how to say farewell. Sunshine today takes us through the final hours of the month, or at least the final hours of daylight. We should have clear skies overnight tonight. May need the blanket as it falls to the mid-50s. Then tomorrow, sunny skies up in the mid-70s. More sunshine ahead for the weekend could make it to the 80s. 74 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Early in 2022, right after Russia invaded Ukraine, a wave of arson attacks hit military recruitment centers in Russia. Then last September, when Russia began mobilizing its reserve forces, came another round of attacks on draft offices in the country. And then this summer, again, Russians have been trying to set recruitment offices on fire. In all, since the war began, there have been something like 150 such acts of protest in Russia, a figure we know because the independent Russian media outlet Mediazona has been tracking them. And we are joined now by Mika Golubovsky, the English language editor for Mediazona. Welcome back. Hi. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Let me start with the, this, the very obvious basic question of why? Why are people burning down recruitment offices in Russia? Well, you know, the motives are uh, versatile. I mean, at first it was an emotional reaction of people who were opposed uh, to the war, and that's how they expressed their anti-war feelings. Then after the first wave of mobilization, the so-called partial mobilization started, practical reasons were added because some people thought that by burning down uh, recruitment offices, they would uh, actually destroy the files and it will be harder to draft them to go and fight the war in Ukraine. There were financial motivations and... The last huge spike, which was just earlier in August, in, in the very start of August, it was really chaotic and it looked more like a phone scamming. Uh, so people were lured by very, you know, elaborate schemes into actually preparing uh, a Molotov cocktail and going uh, to set the recruitment office on fire. A phone scam campaign organized by who? Uh, that is not completely clear. I mean, there are various hypotheses uh, on this part. It could be uh, it could be Russian secret services in some cases. It could be anti-war activists. It could be Ukrainian secret services, perhaps. But that we don't know for sure. We do know that uh, the FSB, Russian secret Ser service, and Russian police are prone to framing people by various and elaborate ways, and it could be one of those. So you're telling me this could actually be Russian security services paying people to attack Russian military recruitment offices in order to frame them so they can prosecute? Yeah, maybe not paying per se, but promising pay, yes, yes. We know of a case in Yaroslavl where a young woman was... Uh, they're now charging her with attempted arson, although she didn't actually do anything. And provocation by the security forces seems, looks like very, very plausible in this case. And I'm pretty sure it's not the only one. Does the Kremlin acknowledge these attacks? Do they comment on them at all? 
I mean, they comment on each uh, individual attack, not the Kremlin, but like local authorities or security forces, they do comment on it, but no one acknowledges uh, this to be like a movement or anything like that. Because, you know, the Kremlin's narrative is that all Russians support the so-called special military operations, support the war, and uh, acknowledging that just the, the, the sheer amount of it would uh, raise a lot of questions about people's, you know, feelings about what's, ha what's happening. I want people to know, Mika, that you um, you are able to speak freely with us today because you are not in Russia. You're in yeah. Lithuania. Is your site as MediaZona still blocked in Russia? Yeah, it's it's constantly being blocked. I mean, the, our mirror sites are constantly being blocked. I think it's uh, we have over 180 mirror sites now, but people do get access to our reporting in Russia. On social media, on Telegram, on mirror sites, and that kind of with uh, VPNs and that kind of stuff. Do you still have staff reporting in Russia? Uh, some, yes, uh, but we definitely wouldn't want to disclose like their names, <laughs> you know, because it's really it's 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 dangerous. Understood. That's Mika Golubovsky, English language editor for the independent Russian media outlet MediaZona. Speaking to us today from Vilnius, Lithuania. Mika, thank you. Thank you. Many school districts across the country are facing staffing challenges for teachers, school nurses, and mental health counselors. To fill the gap, Texas passed a law that goes into effect tomorrow. It allows members of the clergy to volunteer or be hired as school counselors. Several religious groups oppose the move, saying chaplains lack the mental health and other training that's required. From member station KERA in Dallas, Bill Zebel has our story. The new Texas law lets unlicensed chaplains act as school counselors as long as school boards approve it. The need has only gotten greater following the COVID-19 shutdowns. In Texas, there just aren't enough counselors. While the recommendation is for one counselor for every 250 students, that's according to the American School Counselor Association, in Texas, it's one for every 400 kids. Texas Representative Cole Hefner, a Republican, co-authored the bill. I think we need to give our school districts every tool that we can in the toolbox with all that we've been experiencing with uh, mental health issues and catastrophes and crises. Texas school officials say they've seen a rise in depression, anxiety, and overall stress in students. Chaplain Kathy Burden testified in favor of the bill earlier this year. The co-pastor of Kingdom Life Church in North Texas says clergy have the moral authority to help children in need. Why do we need chaplains in schools? We have a decline in moral values, and there are no absolutes anymore. We are dealing with traumatized students who have no access to crisis interventions. Burden is also chief ministry officer with the International Fellowship of Chaplains. Chaplains are trained to deal with grief and loss, recognize students that are traumatized, help those that are depressed, and also recognize addictions. But Jill Adams, president of the Texas School Counselor Association, says that's not necessarily true. Chaplains may not have any mental health training. All the school counselors Adams leads have master's degrees in the field, they're licensed, they're certified, and she says they're trained in child development and counseling. Chaplains do not have any type of credential or certification that would give them the ability or capacity in a standardized way to say that they are qualified to support students' mental health needs. Sherry Allen agrees. 
She's a cantor in Fort Worth Synagogue Macomb Shalanu. As a chaplain myself, I oppose school districts employing chaplains in place of licensed school counselors. We are not qualified to do that kind of work. Under this new law, school districts could allow chaplains to serve as students' first point of contact for mental health support or suicide prevention. Chaplains are not trained to do that at all. Allen was one of more than 100 Texas clergy who signed a letter opposing chaplains serving as school counselors. She says chaplains are trained to offer religious and spiritual advice, and that does not belong in public schools. She's also concerned about LGBTQ students approaching a chaplain whose religion doesn't accept them. And she worries some chaplains might start proselytizing. Local school boards now have six months to vote on whether they want chaplains in their districts as counselors. For NPR News, I'm Bill Zeebel in Dallas. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes, why it's so important for public health officials to track deaths related to heat and why it's so tough to do. Our forecast should range from cool to not quite hot. Tonight should have moonlit skies, light winds, temperatures a little lower than they have been. Temperatures tonight in about the mid-50s. Then for tomorrow, sunny skies in the mid-70s. More sunshine for the weekend could make it to the low to mid-80s by Labor Day on Monday. Join us at City Space Saturday, September 9th for a special evening of poetry and jazz with three-time U.S. Poet Laureate Robert Pinsky. Get tickets at WBUR.org events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, offering modern Latin American fare in a new food truck, available for catering and events, online booking at lacuchara.com. And Volante Farms in Needham, with daily lunch specials highlighting homegrown produce, full-service deli and cafe with sandwiches and salads, hours at volantefarms.com. Joe Caruso, owner of The Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter. People come up to me and thank me for supporting WBUR, something that they believe in. Those are the people we want to reach, people that not only support and believe in what BUR does, but believe in what businesses that support BUR stand for. Explore how you can become a WBUR underwriter at WBUR.org sponsorship. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The White House is marking International Overdose Awareness Day by announcing $450 million in new funding to help with prevention and treatment efforts. That announcement follows the Food and Drug Administration's recent approval of two over-the-counter medications that help reverse opioid overdose. Here's NPR's Deepa Shivaram. The new funding will support efforts like drug-free community support programs in various states, especially targeting rural communities. White House Domestic Policy Council Director Neera Tandon says saving lives is the goal. We know that overdose is preventable, addiction is treatable, and we can disrupt the flow of illicit fentanyl in America. Additionally, $1 million will go toward making ads targeting young people, which will warn them of the dangers of fentanyl. The White House says young people are the fastest growing age group to experience opioid overdose in the country. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News. Stocks finished mostly mixed on Wall Street today after the Commerce Department reported a jump in consumer spending last month. NPR's Scott Horsley has the latest. 
Consumer spending is a major engine of the U.S. economy, and it's still in high gear. Personal spending rose by eight-tenths of a percent in July, even as personal income rose just two-tenths of a percent. People spent more money on both goods and services last month, while socking away less money in the bank. The Commerce Department's inflation yardstick, which is closely watched by the Federal Reserve, shows prices last month were up 3.3 percent from a year ago. The Labor Department will report tomorrow on July's employment gains and the unemployment rate. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Just a quick recap of the numbers. The Dow lost 168 points today, down about half a percent. The tech-heavy Nasdaq gained 15 points, while the S&P lost 7 points. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Maura Healey is recommending pardons for four people. They include a child care worker, a public servant, a Marine, and a community volunteer. Three of the individuals were convicted of crimes when they were 18 years old. Earlier this year, Healey became the first Massachusetts governor in more than 30 years to recommend pardons in their first year in office. Today is one of the busiest days of the year in Boston for people who are moving. Tomorrow is another. It's especially crazed in neighborhoods such as Alston, where many college students live. Lots of leases end today, and most new tenants can't move in until tomorrow, the start of September. James Kunstol is moving out of Alston to a new apartment in Brighton. His strategy was to put things in storage so he could move into his new place early. I at least get to stay in my current apartment until 8 a.m. tomorrow, which is nice. For a lot of people, that's a huge problem. They're either crashing on couches or having to pay for hotel rooms. Anyone with questions about moving out or in should call the city at 311. If you're on Lower Cape Cod tonight, it may be your chance to get a look at seals up close and almost personal. The Center for Coastal Studies is hosting its final summer seal walk at High Head Beach in North Truro. Jesse Meckling is the Marine Education Director at the center. He says you might be able to see seals during what's called the hauling out. That's when seals gather on the beach in groups. Since they started hauling out on this beach in 2008, there's been a lot of interest in the seals, and there are a lot of misconceptions out there, so it's just kind of talking about the research that the center's doing and other folks are doing and what we're learning about the seals that are here. Meckling says there's a chance you could spot some sharks or whales on the hike as well. Today kicks off a series of mighty fine late summer days. Look for clear skies tonight, dry and coolish, temperatures in the mid-50s. Tomorrow and over the weekend, sunny skies in the 70s tomorrow, inching to the low to mid-80s from Saturday to Labor Day on Monday. 74 degrees in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. From BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Yesterday, one of the most powerful men in Washington was briefly and literally speechless. While taking questions from reporters, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell froze in place, gripping the lectern silent for about 30 seconds. An aide tried to help. Did you hear the question, Senator, running for re-election in 2026? All right, I'm sorry, you all. We're going to need a minute. Senator. McConnell eventually appeared to recover. He took two more questions. His spokesperson later said he was momentarily lightheaded. But a similar episode happened last month. So we have called Dr. Anne Marie. She is Movement Disorders Division Chief at the Rockefeller Neurosciences Institute at West Virginia University. Dr. Murray, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Mary Louise. I, understanding that you have not examined Senator McConnell, so without asking you to make any kind of diagnosis, just briefly tick through what's the range of things that may be going on here. Yeah, I think it's always important to not just emphasize one episode or one event in somebody's life, but also to put it in context. And I think to me, that was the most alarming piece that putting this in context of other recent events um, where clearly Senator McConnell wasn't feeling like himself is the most concerning thing. And it does raise significant concern for an underlying medical problem and potentially even an underlying neurologic problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, the again, not wishing to, to venture in any way towards speculation, but I have seen uh, people saying this could be anything from dehydration to a partial seizure, some kind of stroke, are all of those things on the table if you were, you know, to be examining him as a patient in your practice? Absolutely. I, I, you know, I think you're you're spot on and that we should never speculate about somebody's medical condition having not done a thorough history and examination. Um, but it is concerning. And, you know, I think the my emphasis would be that anyone experiencing similar symptoms should absolutely seek medical care and mm-hmm. have part of that medical care be, you know, with potential specialists if needed. Um, McConnell is 81 years old. He missed nearly six weeks of work this past spring after a fall that caused a broken rib and a concussion. That concussion, is there any way to know if that's a factor here? Absolutely. I I mean, meaning, again, clinically examining him, you could weigh that in. It's important to know that concussion can cause um, individuals that suffer from them to have foggy headedness and, and slower thought. Um, but moreover, in my mind, you know, I often teach my students that it's also putting the whole picture in context and saying, is there something underlying that's causing the fall to begin with that led to the concussion? And how do we connect all of those dots? But saying that concussion can play a role? Absolutely. Um, I want to note that Dr. Brian Monahan, the attending physician at the U.S. Congress, said today he has consulted with Senator McConnell, also with his neurology team. He's cleared the senator to continue with his schedule as planned. Uh, Dr. Murray, does anything you have seen reviewing videos of these incidents, anything you've seen raise questions in your mind about Senator McConnell's ability to do his job? No, not at all, Mary Louise. I mean, I think, again, it's it's really hard to make a snap judgment off of an episode. Um, the thing that I would want to emphasize is to say that whether somebody has a medical problem, even a neurologic problem, 
doesn't actually mean they are would be at concern of not being able to do their job. To me, it's it's not just about can he do his job? You know, if he's cleared by medical experts to do his job, great. It's more about is he healthy? Is he well? Is he functioning as best as he possibly can? And that really is the emphasis of saying that he needs to seek out whatever medical care he needs and, and get the right diagnosis. And and so that ultimately he can he can truly have the best quality of life um, possible. And then with that function at his highest capacity, clearly he's a high functioning individual and at no point um, does does any medical problem really um, directly put that in jeopardy, especially if correctly diagnosed and managed. Dr. Ann Murray is a professor of neurology at West Virginia University. Dr. Murray, thanks for your time. Thank you so much, Mary Louise. It was wonderful. Now let's head to Nebraska, the site of a brand new world record. Yesterday, more than 92,000 fans packed the University of Nebraska's Memorial Stadium. Not for Cornhuskers football, this crowd gathered for women's college volleyball. Nebraska Public Media's Aaron Bonderson reports on the new record for women's sports attendance from Lincoln. The mood was festive, almost like a holiday inside Memorial Stadium, especially when fans found out they had broken a world record. Connie Olson brought her family, saying everyone wanted to be a part of it. My daughter is a huge volleyball fan, and she loves everything about it, So, and this is a historical event. We had to be here. Avery Plessel is a junior at the University of Nebraska. It's kind of a cool just to be a part of it and just to be here and say that you've been able to attend an event like this. This didn't just happen. Volleyball only became an NCAA sport in 1981, but it's huge here now. Volleyball Academy in Omaha draws students from small towns across the state, and the university has sold out more than 300 straight volleyball matches. But that's in an arena that only holds about 8,000. Cornhuskers head coach John Cook says he wasn't sure they could sell out the big football stadium, but was excited to try. This would be really cool, play volleyball and then have a big party afterward, you know, and people will love it. It's a once-in-a-lifetime thing, and that's how people are viewing this. It's a once-in-a-lifetime event. Tickets went on sale in April, and 81,000 sold within the first three days. The school also sold alcohol for the first time at an athletic event in the stadium and added a country music concert at the end. Lexi Rodriguez and Ali Batenhorst are players on the Cornhusker team. Rodriguez says the school's volleyball athletes from the past laid the foundation. And if it wasn't for their like dedication to the sport, dedication to the state of Nebraska, like I don't think we'd have opportunities like this. So it's just unreal that we get the opportunity to be, to be a part of something like this and be a part of history and make history and just play in front of so many people that just love the game. Longtime sports reporter Jane McManus grew up in Lincoln. Now she directs the brand new Center for Sports Media at Seton Hall University. I think we're in a moment of tremendous momentum around women's sports. McManus says every college should brainstorm ways to emulate Nebraska's volleyball day. We're at a place now culturally where we're reevaluating how much we value women's sports. And I think, you know, seeing things like this, it's if you build it, they will come. It's been 51 years since Title IX passed, requiring equal support for men's and women's sports at federally funded schools. McManus says a lot of schools spend and make a lot of money on football, but colleges can no longer ignore the fan interest toward women's sports. Those are still valuable markets that can be developed 
and, and monetized, but also, you know, used for the same sorts of things that Nebraska football is used for, which is building community, bringing people together, uh, having a point of pride for the college, sparking recruitment. At this point, there are no plans to host another volleyball match in Nebraska's football stadium, but Nebraskans are proud they crushed Wisconsin's previous record for a regular season women's college volleyball match by more than 71,000 fans. For NPR News, I'm Aaron Bonderson in Lincoln. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. It's a good time for federal student loan borrowers to go online and become reacquainted with their loans. Payments resume in October after a three-year pause for the pandemic. Plus, hundreds of thousands of borrowers are finding out they don't have to pay. NPR's Corey Turner talked to some of them to learn why. Can you see me? Let me see video. Hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Nikki Miller started college back in the late 90s and has about $8,000 left to be repaid on her student loans. She lives in Rochester, New York, and like many borrowers, is confused heading into October. She's looking for an affordable monthly payment, but doesn't want interest to blow up her balance. I don't want to pay A for another 20 years, and I don't understand why my balance would increase. A few days ago, we spoke over Zoom to talk through her repayment questions. But when she logged into her account, she got kind of quiet. And then... My loans were forgiven. <laughs> Wait. The page is different. <laughs> but you're just, so you're just looking now and your loans are gone? Why are they forgiven? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess you don't have any more questions. I don't. I was wondering why the hell I couldn't get in, too. My loan balance is zero. Nikki is one of more than 800,000 borrowers who have had their balances recently wiped away. And here's why. For years, borrowers should have had access to a special repayment plan that was meant to keep their payments affordable. The problem is that plan was a mess. It was way too hard to get into and badly mismanaged by the U.S. Department of Education and its loan servicers. After years of complaints from borrowers and advocates, as well as an NPR investigation, the department promised last year to do a big retroactive fix. And it turns out that fix is erasing the debts of borrowers like Nikki Miller, who have been in repayment for at least 20 years. Another borrower, Kurt Panton, is almost there. He lives in Germany now with his wife and 10-month-old daughter, Pauline. Here she is, Pauline. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yeah. She's only really seen grandma on video calls, so she's like, okay, this person does not look like grandma. <laughs> Kurt took out loans to go to college and has been steady as a metronome repaying them. He's down to about $20,000. To figure out just how close he is to forgiveness, we hopped on Zoom a few days ago to go over his payment history. Like Nikki Miller, Kurt needs to be in repayment for 20 years, which is 240 monthly payments. So I'm at 233. So that means I have seven more months. <laughs> Never seen her react such a way to an Excel spreadsheet. If Pauline sounds more excited than her dad, it's because he doesn't quite believe that forgiveness is only seven months away. He already got his hopes up earlier this year before the Supreme Court struck down President Biden's big loan relief plan. Still, after almost 20 years in repayment, Kurt should be 
by our math anyway, just a winter away from having his debts erased. I see, I think, a light at the end of the tunnel, and the tunnel's not that dark anymore, <laughs> you know? Kurt pauses a second, doing the math. Seven months from now would be March, his birthday month. Happy birthday to me, he laughs. No more student loans. Corey Turner, NPR News. And for the millions of borrowers who do still have student loans when repayment starts in October, we want to hear your questions. You can send them to npred at npr.org. That is npred at npr.org. You're listening to All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered in about 15 minutes, the beautiful old fishing village of Cedar Key, Florida, has been pummeled by yet another major storm. We'll find out how the community fared this time around. Again, that's coming up in about 15 minutes. In the forecast today kicks off a series of mighty fine late summer days. Look for a clear night tonight, dry and coolish, temperatures in the mid-50s. Tomorrow, sunny skies in the mid-70s, inching to the low and then mid-80s from Saturday to Labor Day on Monday. Red Sox get the night off tonight. They start up a road trip tomorrow out in Kansas City for a three-game series with the Royals. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for being with us today. 73 degrees at 449. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, where college-age students and high school grads can experience a unique mixture of friendship, deep personal growth, and fun. Improve confidence while gaining concrete academic and life skills and practicing healthy habits. Fall semester starts September 18th. Semesteroff.com. And Museum of Science. Visit mazes and brain games and challenge the relationship between the mind and eye in a richly interactive experience for all ages. Tickets at mos.org. Take a moment to ask yourself, are you well-rested? I'm not going to tell you what my answer is, but you can probably guess because maybe you feel the same way. In a world where we emphasize productivity and celebrate busyness, is constant fatigue inevitable? Or can we learn and practice meaningful rest? That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A massive fire ripped through a downtown building in the South African city of Johannesburg overnight, killing nearly 80 people. The five-story apartment block was one of many disused buildings in the city that have been overtaken by gangs who then rent out the space inside to people who are desperate for affordable housing. Poorly maintained and squalid, whole families often share cramped quarters, and security is so precarious that even police are scared to enter. Kate Bartlett reports from Johannesburg, and a warning, this story contains intense descriptions of the night of the fire. The fire broke out in the early hours of the morning. An eyewitness video shared on social media showed flames lighting up the dark city sky, people screaming to get out. By the time the sun rose, the building was a blackened, smoldering shell, 
and the street below was swarming with emergency services and forensic teams with body bags. People have gathered outside the charred remains of the building in Johannesburg CBD, curious to see what's going on. Neighbours from the surrounding buildings who told me they heard screaming during the night, people screaming, help, help. One woman described how she saw people jumping from the windows of the third floor. Mtabisang Maimane, 34, was living in a nearby building and was woken by screaming. I heard the kid crying, help us, help us, it's burning, it's burning. People were trying to reach from upstairs to go down because the fire was too much, it was too much. She recounted how she saw a baby wrapped in a blanket being thrown to safety from the burning building. The building is one of dozens in the inner city that have been abandoned since business moved out of Johannesburg CBD to its safer, leafy suburbs. They're called hijacked buildings because they've been taken over by squatters, many migrants from other African countries who pay slum landlords rent to live in cramped, unsanitary conditions. I don't have anything, like everything, I lose it there. Prudence Lovell, 29, a Zimbabwean mother of two, said she had lost absolutely everything in the blaze. I think the goat is the one who was moving me there. She usually leaves her children there when she works nights, but that day she'd had a fight with her boyfriend and left her children at her friend's house. She says she came to Johannesburg, Africa's richest city, for a better life, but it's been hard. The exact cause of the fire is unknown, but there is speculation people could have been using candles or cooking on fires because there had been yet another power cut that night. President Cyril Ramaphosa visited the site, calling the tragedy a wake-up call. But Soli Minsamang from the main opposition Democratic Alliance said there's been a housing crisis in Johannesburg for years. You do have that in some of these buildings there are drug lords, you do have slum lords. People are preying on the poorest of the poor, but government doesn't seem to care. As night falls in a cold Johannesburg, many families here don't know where they will be sleeping or how they can even start to rebuild their shattered lives. Johannesburg markets itself as a world-class African city, but today it fell far short of that promise. For NPR News, I'm Kate Bartlett in Johannesburg. Police southwest of Toronto got an unusual call yesterday. Hives carrying millions of honeybees had spilled onto a highway. That is not a problem law enforcement is trained to solve. So they called in the experts. Beekeepers rushed to the scene, including Mike Barber, owner of Tri-City Bee Rescue. I asked him to tell me about that call he received from the police. So, yeah, they actually called me multiple times because it was really early in the morning and um, I was trying to get my son back to sleep and I didn't have my phone. So I went back to my own bed, saw that I had missed a whole bunch of phone calls and that it was from the police, you know, fearing the worst. I was actually kind of relieved that it was just about bees and not... Uh, that it was just millions of bees spilled all over a highway. Yeah, just just millions of bees, yeah. And I, so know, bees I can deal with. What did the officer say to you when you called him back? 
Uh, he was very, very happy and very relieved that uh, we were going to get down there as quickly as possible as he was uh, happily hiding in his cruiser. So he wouldn't get stung. Yeah, there were a lot of angry bees flying around. So the first responders, I mean, obviously great at their jobs, but definitely not uh, prepared for a cloud of stinging insects. So they asked for help. So I'm imagining you rolling up to the scene with the full kind of like beekeeper spacesuit, smoke gun that you can spray to call, like what, paint the scene for us. Yeah, we stopped. So the police had closed the road. So we stopped a little further away from the accident, got our bee suits on, got gloves on, chatted with the police officer because they drove up to us and just kind of explained what was going on. And yeah, then we just dove right in. Um, The beekeeper who got in the accident was working with his partner to try to clean things up as quickly as they could. And they were just really happy to see a couple more hands and, you know, delegated a bit. And we just started, you know, putting hives back together. How do you get millions of spilled bees back into their hives? We actually have these little tiny bee flutes that we play. Um, (laughs) The right tune. Someone listening to the radio is believing you right now. Yeah. (laughs) They really like ACDC. So, you know, we just... So you play ACDC on the flute. Yeah, exactly. Uh, No, we um, started putting the hives back together and bees are really great at communicating with each other. Um, They communicate through um, pheromone. So Mm -hmm. once the hives were back on the trailer, they started putting out a pheromone that, you know, a lot of beekeepers call the come home pheromone. Huh, like all clear. Yeah, like literally, you know, all these flying insects that were super confused just kind of descended calmly onto the boxes once they were back together. Can you estimate how many you were able to save and, and how many didn't make it? Uh, I would think that only foragers, only the older bees that were out trying to defend the hives were really lost as the traffic wasn't stopped until a little bit after the accident. So there were a whole bunch of squished bees on the road, which was really sad. But I think that the hives themselves, I would say, you know, 80 or 90 percent of them will be fine. Uh, You've got bee rescue in the name of your company. How unusual is a rescue like this? Uh hopefully once in a lifetime type rescue. Definitely a really sad scenario. But uh, yeah, our rescues are are much tamer than this. Um, we remove bees that are too close to humans for their comfort, for the humans' comfort, not the bees. We're used to dealing with single hives, not multiple hives, and definitely not as angry. Mike Barber of Tri-City Bee Rescue, thanks so much for sharing the story with us. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real time data to uncover insights, stay decision ready, and prepare for whatever's next the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Procter and Gamble, maker of Metamucil. A fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From Bank of America, 
offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. For nearly two months now, crews have been working around the clock to repair the Sumner Tunnel in Boston. By tomorrow morning, the tunnel will be open again, at least for now. What you need to know, coming up on WBUR. This is 90.9 WBUR. The forecast, what's not to like? Clear skies that should last through the night tonight. Dry, light winds. Tonight's low should fall to the mid-50s. Tomorrow, sunshine's back. Highs in the mid-70s. Then for the Labor Day weekend, we still should be graced by sunshine. Temperatures ratcheting up to the low to mid-80s. As of now, that includes Labor Day Monday when it could reach 87 degrees. It's 4.59. I'm health care reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Hurricane Adalia's storm surge and high winds pounded the quaint fishing community of Cedar Key on Florida's Gulf Coast. Most people evacuated beforehand, but not everyone. As the water came under the building and came up, it popped my floor, so there's a few holes in the floor. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Cedar Key managed after yet another storm coming up. I'm Lisa Mullins. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas has disclosed three trips he took on a private jet owned by a Republican mega-donor. The watchdog group Fix the Court isn't satisfied. This is not a complete response. There's still a lot more out there that we don't know and that he's not reporting. And we'll find out what Justice Thomas is reporting. Federal government may soon change how marijuana is regulated. The drug enforcement officials are conducting a review of whether pot should remain a strictly controlled substance. It's 501 News Headlines, and the forecasts are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. A day after Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell froze during a press conference in Kentucky, For the second time in as many months, the Capitol physician has issued a statement on his condition. NPR's Deirdre Walsh has more. Senator McConnell abruptly stopped talking mid-sentence when a reporter in Kentucky asked him Wednesday if he planned to run for re-election. The episode raised questions about the GOP leader's health, following a similar one at the Capitol in July when McConnell froze. Dr. Brian Monahan, the Capitol physician, says in a statement that he has consulted with McConnell and his neurology team and that the minority leader has been cleared to work. Monahan added, quote, occasional lightheadedness is not uncommon in concussion recovery. It can also be expected as a result of dehydration. McConnell fell in March and suffered a concussion. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, Washington. Tropical Storm Idalia is finally heading out to sea after battering Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina with floods, wind damage, and power outages. And now the cleanup begins. The storm was a major hurricane when it came ashore yesterday morning on Florida's Gulf Coast. Governor Ron DeSantis says there's significant damage in the Big Bend region. I mean, there's a massive amount of debris because you have a lot of trees in, in this part of the state. And uh, you know, there were trees knocked down. They would knock down power lines. Uh, there were there were branches and all kinds of stuff kind of everywhere. 
And he says many buildings were also damaged, including many roofs blown off. The National Hurricane Center says tropical storm conditions, along with a storm surge and coastal flooding, are expected on the eastern seaboard of North Carolina through tonight. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says a long-range Ukrainian-made weapon hit its target at a distance of around 440 miles. Hanna Palomarenka has more. During their daily conference call, the president of Ukraine heard from various ministries, including the Ministry of Strategic Industries of Ukraine, which reported on its production. After that, Zelensky put out a statement touting a successful use of Ukrainian-made long-range weapons that hit their Russian target after traveling more than 400 miles. He didn't specify which target he was talking about. However, the distance is roughly that from Ukraine to the Russian town of Pskov, where explosions occurred at an airfield last night. The main intelligence directorate of Ukraine confirmed that four Russian aircraft were destroyed there. For NPR News, I'm Hanna Polomarenko in Kyiv. The number of people applying for unemployment benefits fell slightly last week. The Labor Department says the number of people applying for first-time jobless benefits was down 4,000 to a seasonally adjusted 228,000. Wall Street was in mixed territory by the close. The Dow was down 168. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts' highest court has upheld most of the recommended punishments for three former assistant attorneys general involved in one of the state's drug lab scandals. The Supreme Judicial Court ruled that all three should be reprimanded for withholding evidence in the scandal, which resulted in tens of thousands of criminal drug cases being dismissed. Here's WBR's Deborah Becker. The harshest punishment is disbarment for former assistant AG Ann Kazmarek, who led the prosecution of former state chemist Sonia Farrick. Farrick was convicted almost a decade ago of personally using many of the drug samples she was supposed to be testing for evidence. The court said, quote, as a result of Kazmarek's intentional and egregious misconduct, the due process rights of thousands of criminal defendants were violated. The justices upheld a one-year-and-a-day suspension for former assistant AG Chris Foster. The court did not agree with the recommended punishment for John Verner, their former supervisor in the AG's office. Instead of a three-month suspension, the SJC said he should face a public reprimand. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. As many as 250 members of the Massachusetts National Guard will help provide services at emergency shelters in the state as of next week. Governor Healy activated the Guard today in the wake of recent concerns about families in the state shelter system. Last week, WBUR reported that more than 10 percent of those households were placed in hotels and motels that don't have the proper staff support or services to coordinate food, transportation, or medical care. People looking to jumpstart the long holiday weekend are hitting some backups on major roadways. The expressway southbound is heavy and slow from the city down to Braintree. On Route 3 heading to Cape Cod, traffic begins to back up in Hanover and then does not break up until Kingston. As of now, there are no significant backs up the Sagamore or Bourne bridges. And the forecast should be a beautiful weekend coming up. Sunshine right now takes us through the final hours of the month. We should have clear skies overnight tonight. You may need a blanket as it falls to the mid-50s. Tomorrow, sunny skies up in the mid-70s. More sunshine for Saturday, Sunday, and Labor Day Monday as it should creep into the low to mid-80s. 73 degrees now in Boston at 506. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts.
This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In Florida, cleanup is underway. One day after Hurricane Idalia slammed into the state's Big Bend region, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis surveyed some of the damage today, accompanied by FEMA Administrator Deanna Criswell. The good news, the governor said, so far there have been few fatalities in Florida directly connected to the storm. NPR's Greg Allen reports. This island saw a nearly seven-foot storm surge, the highest ever recorded here. Hurricane Idalia inundated the lowest parts of Cedar Key and brought anywhere between a few inches to several feet of water into many homes and businesses. Nearly everyone evacuated from the island before the storm. Today, many people were back, assessing the damage and beginning the cleanup. A few blocks back from the Gulf, Tony Jones was using a shop vac to start drying out a friend's house. All this was underwater. I figure at least two, three feet, maybe more, I don't know. Some of the worst damage from Medallia is on Cedar Key's Dock Street. That's a block of bars, restaurants, and shops that cater to tourists, a mainstay of the island economy. At Duncan's on the Gulf, the rising floodwaters buckled the restaurant's concrete floor. Owner Laura Duncan says out back, the damage is even worse. Careful. Yeah. I was telling them that nobody's taking pictures from the back and we've lost the whole deck in the back. The stairs are gone. Everything's gone. Duncan was there with staff and others today beginning the cleanup. She says rebuilding will begin as soon as they get permits. We always do. We always do. you got to have faith. It's all. It's nothing but material if you think about it. Material could be worked. You know, it's wood. Build back together and nails and make it a new look. Throughout Cedar Key today, people were using heavy equipment to clear debris. At a coffee house, the Prickly Palm, owner Hannah Healy and friends were cleaning up. In the business, it's probably belly button height or higher if it was standing water. Healy says as Idalia approached, she removed refrigerators and kitchen equipment from the coffee house and stored them off island. But she says she couldn't prepare for such a massive storm surge and the damage it caused to her 90-year-old building. It popped my entire floor. As the water came under the building and came up, it popped my floor. So there's a few holes in the floor. Healy says her business and much of the island saw significant damage seven years ago in Hurricane Hermine. It took time, but Cedar Key came back from that. And recently, she says, more people and businesses have moved to the town. Idalia's damage is even worse, but she's confident her funky coffee house and most businesses in Cedar Key will soon be rebuilt. The whole building's redneck engineered together and a little redneck engineering and community love, and it'll go right back. Power has already been restored to the undamaged homes and businesses here, and water service is resuming soon. Elsewhere in Florida's Big Bend, recovery is going more slowly. Tens of thousands of homes and businesses are still without electricity. Officials say the rural nature of the region and the many downed trees will make power restoration slow here. In Cedar Key, despite the historic storm surge, most people cleaning up today were remarkably upbeat. Tammy Wilkes is a nurse practitioner who operates a health clinic in town. When water got into our building, uh, we were expecting a much higher surge, so we're actually quite lucky. Uh, so we're, now we just have to hose everything out, clean everything up, and get ready to open back up for the patients. Edalia made landfall nearly 90 miles north of here. A direct hit, Wilkes says, could have wiped out the town. Greg Allen, NPR News, Cedar Key, Florida. The first congressional visit to Syria in five years took place over the weekend. Three Republican lawmakers crossed over the border from Turkey and visited a school for orphans. Congressman French Hill of Arkansas was one of the men on the trip, and he's here to tell us about it. Welcome to All Things Considered. Ari, it's great to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. What did you see in Syria? Well, first and foremost, we crossed the border from Turkey with an eye that we wanted to 
see these kids who've lost their parents to Assad's murder and mayhem over the last 12 years. And what broke my heart was these were children that essentially are now six years old. They're first graders. They're holding up photos of their fathers that were murdered by Assad, but they've known nothing else. Mm -hmm. They've effectively lived on the run in a refugee camp since they were born. Can you tell us about one of the kids you met? Well, I asked a little girl how old she was, and she said she was six, and I asked her what her favorite hobby was outside of school, and she said she loved to play football, uh, meaning not American football, but European football. Soccer, yeah. And she had this bright, beautiful face, and she appeared happy, but I know that's only because I got to meet her teachers and her principal, Hmm. what deeply committed people these are. Uh, But there's nothing normal about the life that these sweet kids are enduring right now. I understand that for safety reasons, the group was only able to spend less than an hour in Syria and that you were inside of the Turkish border. So would you say this was mostly a symbolic statement? And if so, what message were you trying to send? I mean, this is not to be tolerated by decent, caring nations, which is why I really urge the Biden administration to continue to look at Syria and advocate for a new change in policy. And we're going, unfortunately, in the wrong direction due to the Arab League's recent normalization of relations with Syria. Well, let me ask you about that. The civil war started more than a decade ago, and it has continued through changes in policy under three presidents, Obama, Trump, and now Biden. The Arab League recently voted to reinstate Syria's membership after a 12-year suspension. And so do you think it's time for the U.S. to stop pretending that American policy towards Syria will determine the outcome of this war? We need to look at doing something different. And that's one reason why I wanted to join my colleagues and engage with the interim government in northwest Syria who want a free Syria. They want to hold elections. They want to have a pluralistic society there. They want to have villagers and refugees come back. Some three million refugees are in Turkey. There's over a million in Jordan. They want to go back and have the Syria that they remember. But at this point, the Arab League seems to be saying after 12 years, the reality of the situation is Assad remains as firmly entrenched as ever. Does the U.S. need to face that same reality? Well, I think we should face the reality that Assad is still there. But look at this, Ari. The stated public goals of the Saudi Arabians and others are end the drug trade from Syria to surrounding states called Captagon that's poisoning families in Arab countries. This is a synthetic amphetamine that's produced in Syria. Correct. Driven by the Assad regime, including Assad family members. End Iran's disproportionate influence in Syria and remove the 30,000 fighters that uh, Iran has brought into the country. Why didn't you have preconditions that would facilitate accomplishing some of those objectives, first and foremost, safety and security, and secondarily, remove the Iranian fighters, and thirdly, in the Captagon trade. That's something that's in Assad's power. He can stop manufacturing methamphetamine and poisoning people throughout the Gulf and Europe. Your district is home to a large Syrian population. How have the Syrian people you've gotten to know in Arkansas shaped your understanding of what the U.S. role in this conflict ought to be? Well, they want American leadership working with uh, neighboring countries and European allies to find a political solution to Syria. They want to be able to go back to their graveyards, back to their villages, back to their ancestral homes, back to relatives that they still have there. So uh, we take it personally in Arkansas because we know the people that are impacted by Assad's regime. 
Congressman French Hill, Republican of Arkansas, thank you very much. All right, thanks for the time. The federal government may soon change how marijuana is regulated. This week, the Drug Enforcement Administration kicked off a review of whether marijuana should remain a strictly controlled substance. As NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin reports, one major effect of this change would be on research. Professor R. Lorraine Collins directs the University at Buffalo SUNY's Cannabis and Cannabinoid Research Center. When she wants to study something about marijuana... I, as a researcher, cannot go to a store and buy cannabis and use it in my research. Instead, she has to get some grown and processed by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, part of NIH. This is inconvenient. It also means that the marijuana that people in many places can just walk into a store and buy isn't being studied. On a retail level, you can get cannabis products that have pretty high levels of THC. When you get cannabis products from National Institute on Drug Abuse, the THC content is much lower. Cannabis researchers also have to go through approval from three different federal agencies, keep the drug in very safe, locked conditions. It's a lot. With all the constraints on studying it, you ask a question and we probably need to find out more. Like how does the drug move through the body? How do different doses affect different biological processes? The effects of different modes of administration. Are you vaping, smoking, eating gummies, and so forth? Last year, President Biden asked the federal health agencies to evaluate whether marijuana should stay so highly regulated. Right now, it's a Schedule One drug, the highest level of control, along with LSD, heroin, and ecstasy. That means it has a high potential for abuse and no medical uses. On Tuesday, a top health official sent a letter to the Drug Enforcement Administration reportedly recommending that marijuana be downgraded to a Schedule Three substance, along with ketamine and testosterone. That would be fairly momentous. Rob Mikos is a professor at Vanderbilt University Law School. He says according to DEA's definitions, drugs on any level lower than Schedule One have accepted medical uses. This would be the first time in you know, 50 years that the federal government would be acknowledging that, hey, there's, there's some medical utility to this drug. Michael says that would close the gap between the federal position on the drug and the states. Medical marijuana is currently legal in 38 states and D.C. Now, none of this is a done deal. The ball is in DEA's court to review the health agency's recommendation and decide what to do next, all of which, Michael says, could take years. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A mixed show on Wall Street for this final trading day of the month. The Dow dropped a half percent. S&P fell less than two-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq gained a little bit of ground. It was up a tenth of a percent. This has been the worst month of the year for the Nasdaq. Business news comes up at 6.30. The time now is 5.19.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. The Sumner Tunnel in Boston is set to reopen tomorrow morning after a two-month shutdown, and that means the MBTA's Blue Line will no longer be free. Blue Line commuters have had a free ride since early July when the tunnel from East Boston to downtown closed as part of the Sumner's restoration project. As of tomorrow, fares and parking rates will be back to normal. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru. Introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra. On Route 60 in Belmont and at CitysideSubaru.com, love is now electric. Listen to WBUR anywhere you venture. Download or update the WBUR app now and tap to listen live. The annual Gloucester Schooner Festival gets underway this afternoon. It kicks off with an obstacle course race among vessel captains vying for the coveted Rum Bottle Award. The festival finishes Sunday with a parade of schooners. The event is a tribute to the history of sailing in Gloucester. The first schooner is thought to have been built there in the 1700s. Should be a beautiful weekend, whatever you decide to do. Clear tonight, sunshine tomorrow, and through the weekend as well. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. If you took out a dodgy government business loan during the pandemic, you might be wondering if it'll ever catch up with you. And you might have a lot of company. Investigators now say they have questions about $200 billion worth of federal business aid, which includes the PPP loans issued during the depths of the crisis. That is way too many cases for the feds to look into, but local investigators have joined the effort, and your likelihood of getting caught may come down to where you work. NPR's Martin Costi has the story from Chicago. The thing about those millions of forgivable pandemic loans, they're searchable. During the pandemic, news organizations sued the government to make sure it would post basic information, such as names, addresses, and dollar amounts. And when you dig into that data, it can take you to some interesting places. Hi. Such as Matthew House, a small day shelter for the homeless on Chicago's south side. A couple of men are watching TV. Tia Singleton is the shelter's director of case management. They can come in and get out of the elements. They can stay all day, take two showers, uh, have two hot meals. There's also a free mail room here. Anyone, homeless or not, can give out this address, and 50 people did when they applied for pandemic business loans. Records show that more than half of them got the money, usually $20,000, which was the standard amount for a one-person business with $100,000 in revenue. Singleton looks at the list of names. And I'm sure maybe 99% of the people are here don't have a business. 
She says nobody in government ever contacted Matthew House to ask about the 50 businesses supposedly based here. No, and that's why this is very concerning to me because if these people all have the same address, I think that should have been questioned, right? But to be fair, investigators have their hands full. That PPP list is full of suspicious patterns like this. There's repeated addresses, repeated names, and the recurrence of certain kinds of one-person businesses that are hard to prove didn't exist. Catering comes up a lot. One study showed that Chicago had a higher rate of these suspicious loans than other big cities. It's not clear why. Lisa Noller says you have to be realistic about what the feds could do about it. Well, there's there's a resource issue. Noller is a lawyer who used to prosecute financial crimes for the U.S. Attorney's Office in Chicago. She says the feds tend to look for cases with a good return on investment, egregious cases where someone claimed to have multiple employees and stole millions. These one-person business loans are just less interesting. The federal government does not have so many prosecutors that they can pursue people who got $20,000. There's also no jail time for a $20,000. So does this mean the small fry will get off scot-free? Not necessarily, because this is where the inspectors general come in. I'm Will Fletcher. I'm the inspector general for Chicago Public Schools. Inspectors general for public agencies often investigate fraud committed by their employees. Fletcher knew that he'd have his hands full when he saw how during the pandemic the feds were handing out money with few questions asked. When that happened, when we saw how little information was being collected, we knew that people would go for it. So Fletcher's office ran that PPP data against the list of Chicago schools 30,000 employees. While they may have correctly assessed that the chances of an FBI agent showing up at their door were rather low, what they probably didn't count on was that local oversight agencies would be looking into these loans because they have to protect the integrity of the government entity that they work for. He says so far they've identified 15 cases of fraud among school employees and more cases are open. Things are even further along over at the Chicago Housing Authority. The inspector general there is Katherine Richards. Her office overlooks a noisy junction for the L train. Last year, her office identified 23 housing authority employees who had suspicious loans or got loans for real businesses that they'd been hiding from their employer. 16 employees ended up being fired. We had a good handful say they were using the money to start a business. <laughs> Others just my sister told me to do it. I didn't read it, but I signed it. Some things like that. NPR reached out to the fired employees. Most didn't want to talk. One did, but not on tape. We're not using her name because she's admitting to a crime. I did get caught up in it, she said. But she also said she had decades with the housing authority and, quote, I was a damned good employee. The residents loved me, and I felt like what happened didn't have nothing to do with our jobs, unquote. But the IG says this does have to do with their jobs, especially since the housing authority doles out federal money. You can't administer a federal program if you've defrauded another federal program. <laughs> so, Other public agencies are also running investigations. Chicago IG Deborah Witzberg won't say how many of the city's 36,000 employees are under scrutiny, or which ones, but she says she has certain priorities. We are appropriately more concerned about potential abuses by people in positions of public trust. High-ranking people, you know, city officials, people in positions where they interact with or control some piece of city finances, etc. And this isn't just about public employees either. People on government aid are now under suspicion. 
Denerica Brooks is with Chicago Legal Aid. The Chicago Housing Authority is affirmatively looking at that online ledger to see which families have received PPP loans, and the CHA is using that information to terminate the subsidies of those families. The CHA has identified almost 9,000 loans linked to people in subsidized housing, and it's telling residents to explain pandemic aid that potentially disqualifies them for their low-income benefits. But Brooks says this is unfair, making them justify their PPPs when so many big businesses didn't have to. She says it's making people anxious. The worries are, when will they start looking? When is the cutoff? Am I safe? And what can I do? And who's going to be able to help me actually preserve my subsidy if I need help? As to the question of how long this will hang over people's heads, Will Fletcher thinks it's going to be a while. I don't know that that concern ever gets stale. Besides being the IG for Chicago schools, Fletcher is also president of the Association of Inspectors General. They just had their conference in Chicago. He says around the country, every local or state IG he knows has some kind of PPP investigation going. He also predicts that the question of bogus pandemic loans will now become a permanent part of public agencies' vetting process. We think that it should be. We think that when you're hiring a new employee in any kind of a position of trust, It should be part of the standard background check, where you went to school, whether you've had an arrest. You should also look for indicators of pandemic fraud, including PPP fraud. So if you did bend the truth about having a small business during the pandemic, the feds are probably not coming for you. But that searchable list is not going away. Martin Costi, NPR News, Chicago. The U.S. left Afghanistan two years ago in a chaotic withdrawal and evacuation. More than 100,000 Afghans who helped the U.S. as interpreters, as drivers and guards were left behind. And today, two years on, some American veterans and aid workers are still trying to help their former allies escape the Taliban. I didn't have any sort of plans to become a refugee advocate or anything like that. It was just a simple matter of conscience. More on that effort tomorrow on Morning Edition. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, why heat-related deaths are so important to track and why it's so hard to track them. That's in our series Beyond Normal in about 15 minutes on WBUR. Red Sox get the night off tonight. They start up a road trip tomorrow out in Kansas City for a three-game series with the Royals. And the forecast tonight should feature moonlit skies, cooler temperatures dipping to the mid-50s, so a little chilly tonight. Tomorrow, September 1st, much like today, with highs in the mid-70s. The weekend should bring more sunshine, could rise to 81 degrees on Saturday, Sunday, and Labor Day Monday. Sunny again. Beautiful again, summer-like temperatures in the mid-80s on Sunday, maybe a little bit higher for the holiday on Monday. This is 90.9 WBUR, 73 degrees under sunny skies in the Boston area at 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. StoryCorps is celebrating its 20th anniversary, and they're not the only ones with a big milestone. My name is Mike Walnuts. I'm here with my wife, Deborah Burkars, 
It's been almost 20 years. We're still together. We revisit a couple who got engaged in a StoryCorps recording booth. That's tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WB1. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Making a surprise visit to FEMA headquarters today in Washington, D.C., President Biden thanks staff for their responses to the fires in Maui, Hawaii, and this week's devastating hurricane that walloped the southeast. You are making an incredible contribution. I mean, it's, it's, I don't think, I hope the American people have a sense of, and it's hard to understand it because, you know, we usually don't, we're, we're not this engaged this often. But this last couple of years with climate change and really kicking in, uh, you guys are going 24th hours a day and 365 days a year. Biden plans to visit storm-damaged Florida on Saturday following the first devastating hurricane of the season. Meanwhile, Oprah and Dwayne The Rock Johnson have committed $10 million to a fund to make direct payments to people on Maui who are unable to return to their homes because of the wildfires. The U.N. Secretary General says he's made some proposals to Russia to revive a deal that allowed Ukraine to export grain on world markets. NPR's Michelle Kellerman says Russia and Turkey have been holding talks on that, too. The U.N. Secretary General has been scrambling to revive the deal, which he says is needed to stabilize global food markets. Antonio Guterres says he sent a letter to Russia's foreign minister offering some concrete suggestions to make the Black Sea Grain Initiative more stable. We cannot have a Black Sea Initiative that moves from crisis to crisis, from suspension to suspension. We need to have something that works and that works to the benefit of everybody. Russia withdrew, complaining about Western sanctions that make its agricultural exports more difficult. The U.S. denies that, and the U.N. says it is trying to help Russia get its food and fertilizer to world markets. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Today and tomorrow are considered the biggest moving days of the year in Boston. It's also known as Alston Christmas, when people sift through all the stuff that renters have tossed out in Alston. Boston Inspectional Services Commissioner Sean Lydon urges people to think twice before they take something from the sidewalk. There's a reason it's out in the trash. Leave it there. Let them pick it up. Particularly electrical. You know, you don't want to pick up a lamp or something and plug it into the wall, leave it on. It could be a short short in there. There's a reason it's in the trash. Leave it there. Boston's fire chief, Patrick, or fire's Patrick Ellis, cautions tenants with an e-bike not to let them charge overnight. He says there have been cases of batteries exploding. Vigils are being held across the state to mark International Overdose Awareness Day. On Boston Common, Governor Maura Healy attended a flag-planting ceremony. The 20,000 purple flags represent Massachusetts residents who were lost to the opioid epidemic in the past decade. The governor told families today the flags are inspiring political leaders in the state house to address the problem. Long after these flags are gone, because in time, if you can believe it, we'll see snow and we'll see falling leaves. Uh, Know that the mark of these flags will remain with each and every one of us in the work that we do up in that building. Other vigils are being held in communities, including Worcester and Lynn. The governor is nominating to the state parole board a woman who is a social worker and community organizer. Governor Healy says Sarah Coughlin has the experience to make the criminal justice system more just and equitable. 
Criminal justice reform advocates have been calling on the governor to move faster to fill three open positions on the parole board. Healy is also recommending pardons for four more people. They include a Marine veteran who was wounded in Afghanistan and was convicted of drunk driving before he entered the service. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lesley University. Make a difference as an artist, educator, or counselor with a degree from Lesley University. Get started today at lesley.edu. Today is the first of several mighty fine late summer days. Clear skies tonight, dry and coolish in the mid-50s. Tomorrow, sunshine returns in the 70s, then inching to the low and mid-80s Saturday, Sunday, and Labor Day Monday. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox, streaming new and original British series starring Succession's Matthew McFadden and Game of Thrones' Gemma Whelan, available at BritBox.com NPR. From DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot and from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas released his 2022 financial disclosure form today. He reported three trips on a private jet owned by billionaire Harlan Crow, a Thomas friend and GOP megadonor. Thomas's form and another from Justice Samuel Alito were filed three months after the seven other justices filed their forms and after Thomas and Alito were granted extensions. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg is here in the studio with more. Hey, Nina. Hi there, Ari. There have been a slew of reports in recent months by ProPublica and other news outlets about Justice Thomas's relationship with Harlan Crow and other billionaire conservatives who've given him all sorts of benefits like luxury travel, financing a loan for a high-end RV. What did we learn today from these documents that we didn't know before? This document is really pretty interesting because it provides justifications for some of the private jet travel. And although the form only covers 2022, it sort of, through the back door, seeks to justify other benefits that Thomas received from Crow previously. The front door, as it were, is the 2022 form that discloses the three jet trips. One, Thomas reports, came came after he had gone to Dallas to be a keynote speaker at an event sponsored by a conservative group, and he flew back on Crow's jet, quote, due to an unexpected ice storm. The talk was rescheduled for May, and this time he took a round trip on Crow's private jet because quote, there were increased security risks following the leak of the court's abortion opinion. And he also reported that he'd taken Crow's jet to and from Crow's estate in the Adirondacks for a vacation where meals and entertainment were also provided. Gabe Roth of the watchdog group Fix the Court sees the 2022 filing as a good first step, but... I mean, I think that this is only sort of a half answer that we get today from Justice Thomas. We know some of the private trips that he took in 2022, but he does not go back and list any of the trips that he took via private planes, via yacht, via helicopter, 
that should have been reported in previous years. Nina, is there any indication in this report that Thomas intends to do that, go back and amend his previous forms? I think there's every indication he will not do that. Indeed, he uses the 2022 form to clarify his failure to report Harlan Crow's purchase of a home that Thomas owned in Savannah, Georgia, a home where his mother still lives. That purchase was in 2014 and was not disclosed then. Thomas said he didn't realize it had to be disclosed as a real estate transaction because he'd made improvements to the home over the years, so the sale was a, quote, capital loss. I'm not sure really I understand what has, that has to do with reporting it as a real estate transaction, but that's what he says. So how does he justify reporting the Crow plane trips and luxury vacation in 2022, but not any before that? Thomas maintains that until this year, when the Judicial Conference clarified the rule on personal hospitality, the guidance provided by the Administrative Office of the U.S. Courts was that judges did not have to disclose private transportation or luxury trips extended by personal friends. Or, as Thomas put it in the filing today, and here I'm quoting, Filer is not aware of anything in the Judicial Conference regulation issued for more than 30 years or in any advice provided by the Judicial Conference to judges. That is, it is inconsistent with this, meaning his, position. Translation, this was my understanding, and there's no evidence I was wrong. NPR's Nina Totenberg. Thank you. Thank you, Rari. As Russia continues to look for ways to sell its oil and gas, it's turning increasingly to the Arctic. The summer has seen a sharp increase in the number of Russian oil tankers shuttling crude to ports in China via polar waters. Climate change means there is less ice for ships to navigate. NPR's international affairs correspondent Jackie Northam reports. For more than a decade, Russia has been trying to develop the Northern Sea Route, a shipping lane that runs along the country's northern coastline. Russia considers it part of its internal waters. That's disputed by other Arctic nations. Before the war in Ukraine, the Northern Sea Route was mostly used to transport Arctic oil and gas to Europe. That stopped last year after the European Union and the UK banned imports of Russian crude. And so now a lot of this Arctic crude oil is headed for Asia, predominantly China. Malta Humpert is founder of the Arctic Institute in Washington, D.C. He says in the past, oil tankers rarely tried to navigate the frozen waters of the northern sea route. Last year, there was only one ship for the entire year, and we've already seen six ships right now, and the, uh, the summer navigation season has another six to eight weeks to go. Russia does send crude to China via pipeline, but that's not enough to make up for the loss of oil sales to Europe, says Victor Katona, lead crude analyst at Kepler, a commodity analysis group. Those pipelines are fully maxed out. So anything that there would be incremental needs to come from the seas. And the Northern Sea Route is the quickest way right now. Katona says using the Arctic route has long appealed to shipping companies because it can cut enormous amounts of time from end to end. So instead of, let's say, 45 days, which it would take for a Russian tanker to go through the Suez Canal uh, with the Northern Sea Route, they end up having 35 days of voyage. But it's a challenging and environmentally sensitive route. Rebecca Pincus is director of the Polar Institute at the Woodrow Wilson Center. She says areas such as the far eastern part of the northern sea route still get a lot of thick ice. 
A couple of years ago, about 20 commercial ships got stuck in the East Siberian Sea. The ships that got trapped had to wait several weeks to be broken out by large icebreakers. And, you know, Russia has a strong fleet of icebreakers, but, you know, it, it doesn't have continual coverage. Pincus says massive oil tankers do not have icebreaking capability. She says earlier this year, Ross Adam, which administers the Northern Sea Route, announced it intended to send oil tankers out unaccompanied by icebreakers. That is a very high-risk plan. You know, it's a sign, I think, of Russian desperation, right? The Russia's trying to get as much Arctic oil to Asia to bring in income because of, you know, Western sanctions. And so Russia's sort of throwing all of the vessels that it's got at this problem. And then there's always the risk of an accident, a tanker getting crushed by ice or running aground. Andrew Hartzig is the Anchorage-based director of the Arctic program at the Ocean Conservancy, an environmental advocacy group. He says an oil spill would seriously affect the ecosystem, birds, fish, invertebrates on the ocean floor, and communities in the area. Hartzig says ice can make an oil spill much more difficult to clean up. The presence of ice in the water can interfere with mechanical cleanup devices, with booms, with skimmers. And then that area is also subject to strong currents. Um, You know, if there ever were a spill, uh, that oil would not stay put. Which could spread the oil to the U.S. side of the Bering Strait. Hartzig says Russia has a pretty good safety record on the northern sea route. But that could change if more vessels are plying the waters across the top of the world. Jackie Northam, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Heat is the number one weather-related killer in the United States. But even so, experts say that many heat deaths go uncounted. As part of our series with the New England News Collaborative called Beyond Normal, WBUR's Miriam Wasser looks at the challenge of tracking heat deaths and why doing so could be important for protecting our health on a warming planet. Dr. Hillary Irons is an emergency department physician with UMass Memorial Health. I met her recently after a shift. Right, so we're going into the back part of the emergency department. On hot summer days, Irons is often on the front line of the climate crisis here in New England. She tells a story about a patient she treated a few years ago during a heat wave. So what I can tell you is that it was a very warm and humid day, and EMS brought in a patient who was found unconscious. The patient a woman in her mid-70s, had a history of heart disease and diabetes, and she took some medications to manage these conditions. Her son told Irons that the air conditioner in the apartment they shared was broken. But he said his mother seemed fine that morning when he left for work. When he got back that evening, however, she was laying on her bed, unresponsive. When she was brought into the emergency department, she had an elevated temperature of 102 degrees Fahrenheit, Iron says the woman died in the hospital a few hours later. The official cause of death was kidney failure. But did she also die because of the heat? It's hard to say for sure, but had it not been such a hot and humid day, she might have 
survived. Some deaths are obviously attributable to heat, Iron says. An athlete who collapses while exercising, or a construction worker who experiences heat stroke. In these examples, the person filling out a death certificate would probably list exposure to heat as the cause of death. But in many more cases, like the older woman in the ER, that attribution is complicated. There's no test of, you know, was this death clearly heat-related or not? Greg Willenius is a professor at the Boston University School of Public Health. He says there's no national standard for determining a heat-related death. Those are cases where heat is deemed to be a contributing factor, but not the primary cause of death. So it becomes about inferring that from the available evidence, which is hard. All six New England states have data about the number of heat-caused deaths. There are typically only a few each year. Some were able to pull numbers about heat-related deaths, though most are not actively tracking this. And without this information, it can be hard to know if community and government efforts to address heat are working. Francesca Dominici is a professor at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. This information is absolutely crucial to understand whether or not specific public health intervention could be effective. Heat poses a much greater risk to certain people, like older adults or the unhoused. That's why Dominici says if you know who is dying and where they're dying, you can create targeted interventions, like giving away air conditioning units. That's not to say New England states are ignoring the impact of heat. They all collect data about people who go to the hospital for heat-related problems. In a statement, a spokesperson for the Massachusetts Department of Public Health said that this was a more meaningful measure than heat-related mortality. Other public health experts disagree. They say it's not an either-or thing, and that if we want to protect everyone, we need to measure both hospitalizations and deaths. Eric Kleinenberg, who studies heat waves at New York University, says tracking heat-related deaths may be hard, but it's not impossible. States like Massachusetts don't track heat deaths because they don't have to and because no one has really fought for them to do it. Kleinenberg says other places in the country do it, either on individual death certificates or by using computer models. There is some debate about which method is better, but everyone seems to agree that as heat waves get more frequent and intense, finding a way to track these deaths could help save lives. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Our special series on the changing climate of New England continues tomorrow morning. You'll hear how farmers are experimenting with which fruits to invest in as the region warms. You can also check out our stories from all this week at WBUR.org. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Cape Playhouse in Dennis Village. Now playing Baskerville, a Sherlock Holmes mystery based on Arthur Conan Doyle's classic novel. Tickets at capeplayhouse.com. The month of August sure knows how to say farewell. Sunny skies into the evening hours, then clear tonight. You may need the blanket as it falls to the mid-50s. Tomorrow, sunshine, temperatures in the mid-70s, more sunshine ahead after that. It's nearly the end of summer, and we have just one more beach book recommendation for you. Here's Hannah Ali. The House in the Pines by Ana Reyes is a murder mystery where the question is less who done it and more how to catch him. Maya is convinced she knows who killed her best friend seven years ago, but she doesn't quite know how to prove it. When a new clue surfaces on the internet, Maya returns to her hometown of Pittsfield, Massachusetts to get answers. In The House in the Pines, Reyes turns a seemingly outlandish mystery into a realistic and increasingly frightening story. 
For a transition from summer to spooky season, check out The House in the Pines by Ana Reyes. The Beach Book season is ending, but there's plenty to read on our other newsletters all year round. Subscribe at WBUR.org slash newsletters. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Abraham Verghese is a physician and an author whose books always reflect some part of his life. His new novel is called The Covenant of Water. It's his first in more than a decade since the bestseller Cutting for Stone in 2009. The Covenant of Water is dedicated to Mariama, his mother. When she was in her 70s, my niece, uh, who is her namesake, asked her, Amachi, what was it like when you were a little girl? And my mother was so taken by that question that she wrote longhand in her wonderful penmanship a hundred-page document, you know, with tales of our relatives and stuff we'd all heard as children growing up, much embellished, of course. That record of generations inspired him. This book is also about the lineage of one family. And about a secret that goes back many generations, which is that members of the family, going back every generation, have drowned, drowned in the most unusual places, uh, shallow puddles, lagoons, lakes, in a land where everybody swims. That land is at the southern tip of India, where Verghese's own family originated. The novel revolves around that unusual drowning condition, a medical mystery that unfolds alongside dramatic changes in technology and politics over nearly a century. Early in the epic, Verghese offers a sort of roadmap for the story that's about to unfold. Here he is reading from the book. The grandmother is certain of a few things. A tale that leaves its imprint on a listener tells the truth about how the world lives. And so, unavoidably, it is about families, their victories and wounds, and their departed, including the ghosts who linger. It must offer instructions for living in God's realm, where joy never spares one from sorrow. A good story goes beyond what a forgiving God cares to do. It reconciles families and unburdens them of secrets whose bond is stronger than blood. But in their revealing, as in their keeping, secrets can tear a family apart. That paragraph almost feels like a mission statement for this book. And some 700 pages later, you can check off almost every phrase of that paragraph as foreshadowing something that happens in the plot. So tell me your rules for what makes a good story. Does it line up with what we hear in that paragraph? Yes, I think that, uh, I mean, not to say that I knew the story entirely going in. So it was very much a process of discovery. But the principles to me remain the same, that stories must offer instructions for living, if you like. Stories must speak to a kind of truth. And they, they only resonate if they do that, if they echo with our own challenges, our own lives, and the things that we should have done or could have done, the regrets we have, and the things that we now know we should do. So I think novels are always a form of atonement, and they're also a form of instruction. I've heard other novelists express similar sentiments, but none who are themselves a full-time doctor or medical school professor. You work full-time as a doctor. You're on faculty at Stanford Medical School. And 
every book you've written, both fiction and nonfiction, including this one, have dealt with medical themes. Is there something that writing helps you process or understand or perceive in your day job or vice versa? Yeah, I think the medicine and the writing sort of play off each other. You know, what, what I find is that the writing helps me to process and digest some of the things that are uh, most troublesome that I witness at work. So it's a method of, as Richard Selzer, one of the original doctor writers used to say, it's a way of taking the world in for repairs. Mm. Conversely, I think that um, the craft and discipline of writing has helped me sort of pay more attention uh, and perhaps make more of people's stories. And uh, these days, as a consultant physician, it's rare when knowledge is so easily accessible. It's rare that I come to the bedside and make a magical diagnosis mm. when my juniors don't. Uh, if I contribute anything, it's very often because I'm listening to the story in a different way. I have a larger repertoire of stories to match this patient's story with, and it might lead me to ask more questions. So that is sort of the wealth I bring, is a wealth of story that helps me recognize this particular story. I'm imagining here, but it seems to me working in a hospital, particularly through HIV and through COVID, so much must seem arbitrary and meaningless and incomprehensible. And when you write a novel, particularly with medical themes, nothing is arbitrary, nothing is meaningless, everything is there for a reason. I wonder if that helps provide some kind of order to the chaos of real life. Yeah, I think that that's very true. I think that novels allow me some sort of control uh, in a life where I have very little control. So at least this world, to some degree, not completely, I say to some degree because there is a point where my characters almost dictate what's going to come next. They and, take uh, control of the story. They take control of the story, or at least they tell you, this thing you planned, there's no way I would do it. Get out of here, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> that must be frustrating as an author. No, it's actually delightful. It's the moment that you know you've struck the truth. You've hit the goldmine with this particular character. Yeah. There's one moment late in the book where a character who is a doctor is looking at a brain that is going to be dissected and the brain belongs to a member of her family. I'm being vague here, so I don't give away plot details. And you write that it looks like any other brain, but it isn't. It holds his unique memories, his stories, his love for his family. As a doctor, do you struggle with bridging that divide between the mechanical elements of a body and the unknowable whole of a person? Absolutely. I think it's uh, sort of the daily struggle you know, in a sense, we as physicians are acutely aware of mortality. We're surrounded by it. And whereas I think the rest of the world might live in denial of that, we are acutely aware of it. And yet we also have to practice our own form of denial in order to, to go on. Uh, we can't let our empathy get so overwhelming that we stop making good decisions. So you practice a sort of distancing but in the dark of the night, in your own home, often that all just falls away and you're deeply affected by the thing you just saw. And that's where I think the writing helps to, to make sense yeah. of that, to process that. You know, life is a terminal condition, as uh, John Irving says in The World According to Garp. And, you know, if there's one commonality between life and this novel is that, you know, life ends. And that gives life a particular poignancy. 
I mean, roses would be weeds if they lived forever. What makes a rose beautiful is that it blooms and then it's gone. Abraham Verghese's new novel is called The Covenant of Water. Thank you so much for talking with us about it. It's my honor. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. From Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. Tonight should feature moonlit skies, cooler temperatures dipping to the mid-50s. Tomorrow, a sunny September 1st, a lot like today. Temperatures in the mid-70s and then for the weekend glorious. More sunshine could hit 81 degrees on Saturday. Then for Sunday, maybe the mid-80s, even a little bit higher on Labor Day Monday, sunshine through the stretch. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org slash rentals. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Residents of Florida and Georgia are sifting through piles of rubble where homes once stood. We'll find out about Adalia's path of destruction as the tropical storm continues through the Carolinas. Today is Thursday, August 31st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead for the second time in a little more than a month, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell suddenly went silent at a news conference. Today, Capitol Hill's physician gave him the all clear to return to work. Even so, McConnell's health concerns have focused attention on the fact that members of Congress are often much older than their constituents. There's just no way for people in older generations who experienced the early part of their life cycle in a very different time period to understand where young people are coming from. It's 601 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Former President Donald Trump is asking a judge to sever his Georgia criminal case from two co-defendants who want to go to trial by early November. Defendants Kenneth Chesbro and Sidney Powell have asked for a speedy trial under Georgia law. From member station WABE in Atlanta, Sam Greenglass has more. 
Fulton Superior Court Judge Scott McAfee has already set Chesbro's trial date for October 23rd. Criminal defense attorney Bob Rubin says it's unclear what this means for other co-defendants in the Georgia case, like Trump, who aren't on board with a speedy trial. The axiom among defense lawyers is delay, delay, delay. Typically, the longer a case takes to get to trial, the better off defendants are. Fulton County District Attorney Fawny Willis has pledged to try all 19 defendants together in a sweeping racketeering case and says she's ready to take them all to trial this fall. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. A former leader of the far-right extremist group Proud Boys has been sentenced to 17 years in prison for his role in the deadly January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol building in 2021. Joseph Biggs, a former military member, was convicted of seditious conspiracy and other crimes during the riot. Before being sentenced today, he downplayed his role in the insurrection and begged for leniency and forgiveness. The White House is marking International Overdose Awareness Day by announcing $450 million in new funding to help with prevention and treatment efforts. This follows the FDA's recent approval of two over-the-counter medications that help reverse opioid overdose. NPR's Deepa Shivaram has more. The new funding will support efforts like drug-free community support programs in various states, especially targeting rural communities. White House Domestic Policy Council Director Neera Tandon says saving lives is the goal. We know that overdose is preventable, addiction is treatable, and we can disrupt the flow of illicit fentanyl in America. Additionally, $1 million will go toward making ads targeting young people, which will warn them of the dangers of fentanyl. The White House says young people are the fastest growing age group to experience opioid overdose in the country. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News. The White House is calling on Congress to pass a short-term funding measure to make sure the government stays open after the current budget year ends on September 30th. The Office of Management and Budget says lawmakers will likely need to pass a stopgap measure to avoid a partial government shutdown. If it isn't passed, federal programs that millions of people rely on will be in jeopardy. Wall Street was in mixed territory by the closing bell. The Dow was down 168 points. That's down nearly a half percent. The Nasdaq up 15 points. S&P 500 down 7. This is NPR News. Good evening. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. As many as 250 members of the Massachusetts National Guard will help provide services at emergency shelters in the state as of next week. Governor Maura Healey activated the Guard today in the wake of recent concerns about families in the state shelter system. Last week, WBUR reported that more than 10 percent of those families were placed in hotels and motels that do not have proper support staff and services to coordinate food, transportation, and medical care. Federal prosecutors are charging a former MBTA police sergeant with helping a fellow officer cover up an assault on a man without a home. The incident was at a Red Line T station five years ago. As WBOR's Walter Wuthman reports, the new charges resurrect a controversial case that has pit local law enforcement agencies against each other. The U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts says former Sergeant David Finnerty filed false reports to cover for his subordinate who beat up a man at the Ashmont station. This comes after Suffolk County prosecutors dropped a similar case against him last year. Finnerty's defense attorney, Brad Bailey, says the case should have ended there. I have every confidence that he will likewise be cleared and found innocent of these charges when the full and complete truth comes out. 
Transit police officials welcomed the new charges against their former officer. In a statement, Chief Kenneth Green called the original decision to drop the case, quote, inconceivable. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. A Norfolk man has agreed to plead guilty to price gouging N95 masks at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. Federal prosecutors say Jason Colantoni conspired to sell thousands, tens of thousands of the masks to hospitals for more than twice what he paid for them. He faces up to a year in prison when he's sentenced at a later date. 72 degrees now in the Boston area. Pretty beautiful out there. A big just past full moon tonight. Clear, a little bit cool in the mid-50s overnight. And for tomorrow, sunny skies up in the mid-70s. More sun for the weekend. It could creep to the 80s. It's 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Senator Mitch McConnell's freeze on camera in Kentucky this week was a reminder of a reality about American politics. President Biden is the oldest president ever at 80 years old. The leading Republican presidential candidate, Donald Trump, is 77. And while the average age in Congress dropped slightly this year, it is still one of the oldest in modern history. Recently, Democrats and Republicans have both been forced to confront health issues and other limitations in aging politicians. NPR's Kelsey Snell has this report. This week, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell appeared to freeze involuntarily at a public event. Last month, the 81-year-old Kentucky Republican suffered an extended incident during a press conference in the Capitol. It's been good bipartisan cooperation and a string of... uh, McConnell's aides downplayed his health concerns after both incidents. But public moments like these draw new attention to the reality that the median age in Congress is decades, often generations, older than the people they represent. That disconnect is also at the heart of viral moments where older lawmakers seem completely out of touch. Some even admit it, like 72-year-old Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, who is famous for carrying an ancient flip phone. Remember, everybody. Not very tech-oriented. Here it is. The age and health of lawmakers is a public issue beyond those viral moments. Democrats were temporarily unable to advance scores of judicial nominations this year because Dianne Feinstein, the 90-year-old California senator, was suffering from health setbacks. Kevin Munger teaches political science at Penn State University. He says ailing health and lagging technological expertise are just part of the problem. There's just no way for people in older generations who experienced the early part of their life cycle in a very different time period to understand where young people are coming from. Americans are generally living and working longer, but Munger says young voters in particular are increasingly interested in electing people who look like them and share their experience of the world. And new members elected in recent years are more diverse, but incumbents are different. Last year, 98% of them won re-election. These days, because of the polarization, seats are absolutely That's Alan Lickman, a history professor at American University in Washington. He says elections are essentially decided in primaries now, where parties have little or no incentive to challenge their own members. For McConnell, who assumed office in 1985 and other long-serving members, that means... Essentially being able to sit in those seats as long as they 
wanted. Incumbents have other huge advantages, like access to big donor bases, relationships in Washington and in their home states, plus staff and experience. When it comes down to it, if you're going to vote on someone, you'll be like, well, I would prefer a younger candidate, but if I have two old candidates, I'm going to vote for my party candidate. That's Jennifer Wallach, a professor at Michigan State University. She and her research partner studied why older people are overrepresented in government. They found that people talk about concerns with age in politics. They say they want younger representation in surveys. But at the polls, older politicians keep winning. People are much more going to choose on candidate promises and party and ideology than age. That's true for both parties. Kevin Munger says this moment of public attention to age in politics really does create an opportunity. It might mean that the institutions of government that were developed at a time period when most people died by the age of 60 just are not appropriate for our current and better reality that we've created. The reality now is that politicians are holding on to seats as long as they can. Kelsey Snell, NPR News, Washington. This week, the Biden administration announced a historic milestone for Medicare. For the first time, the health program for seniors is starting to negotiate drug prices. Up first, 10 medications that treat conditions like diabetes and rheumatoid arthritis. But the pharmaceutical industry opposes these negotiations, arguing that lower Medicare drug prices would put a huge dent in companies' ability to find new treatments. NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin has been looking into whether that is true. Hey, Sydney. Hi, Mary Louise. Okay, so the basic question here, how would lower Medicare prices affect drug makers' bottom lines? So the fact that there are eight lawsuits to keep negotiation from happening really tells you that it's will probably cut into how much money drug makers can make. Mm. The entire U.S. healthcare system spent around $600 billion on drugs in 2021, and Medicare Part D, which covers drugs, accounted for about a third of that. When we look at just these first 10 drugs up for negotiation, they cost Medicare $50 billion last year. And I should note, however, that all these dollar figures don't reflect rebates drug makers pay Medicare and private insurers. That said, even though these are just 10 drugs out of the thousands that Medicare pays for, it's a huge chunk of money to the program and a pretty significant chunk of drug spending in the U.S. It sounds like the the basic answer to that basic question is yes, then. Lower prices would affect Mm -hmm. pharmaceutical company revenue. What would that mean for research? So it could mean that drug companies will spend less on R&D, but it isn't necessarily the doomsday scenario the industry predicts. People I spoke to pointed out that there is a correlation between revenue and R&D. Companies tend to spend the same proportion of it year after year. So if there's less revenue coming in, there's likely to be less money going toward research. But what drug companies spend on research isn't completely tied to how many new drugs get discovered. Here's Saad Omer, Dean of the O'Donnell School of Public Health at UT Southwestern in Dallas. A lot of these discoveries come from taxpayer investments in academic research and small startups. And while drug companies do spend money doing crucial clinical trials later on, overall, he says it's just too simplistic to say that without today's high prices, we won't have tomorrow's cures. Okay, so could all of this, these negotiations, push drug makers to shift how they spend their money? Like, uh, I don't know, uh, spending less on lobbyists or less on drug ads on TV? 
It's a good question because drug companies spend a lot of money on TV ads and things like stock buybacks and dividends. In fact, studies have found that often they spend more on those things than they spend on R&D. But it's possible they might spend their research money more wisely. So for so long, the industry's pricing power has meant there wasn't as much need to rein it in. Richard Evans, a pharmaceutical industry veteran who runs SSR Health, says being pickier about which experimental drugs get to move into expensive human clinical trials would be a good place to start. When you go into humans, your spending goes up exponentially, and you should only be putting the best molecule that you can get your hands on into humans, whether you discovered it or not. And the problem is the quality of things you're going into human testing is, is not as good as it should be. So he says changing that could be a silver lining for the industry. Okay, so bottom line on the question we began with, whether these negotiations will dent the pharmaceutical industry's ability to find new treatments. Well, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office looked at the expected effect of the law. It estimated that it would only mean 13 of the 1,300 new drugs expected over the next three decades would not make it to market. Of course, which 13 is kind of the iffy part, right? Is it going to be a drug that cures cancer, or are they all just going to be tiny little tweaks on existing old drugs with new names and bigger price tags? And we don't know. But overall, the CBO's expectation is that this will have only a modest effect on drug development. Thank you, Sydney. You bet. And PR's Sydney Lupkin. In case you've got room for one more podcast in your queue after you've downloaded our podcast, consider this, of course. Here's a new option. It's from a group of comedic up-and-comers you might have heard of. Seth Meyers, John Oliver, Stephen Colbert, and the Jimmies, Fallon and Kimmel. The late-night hosts have banded together to do a podcast for Spotify, all in support of their staffs, who've been out of work for nearly five months now since the start of the writer's strike. NPR's Andrew Limbong has more. The show is called Strike Force 5. What would happen if five of America's top 11 most beloved talk show hosts all talked on top of each other for an hour? The first episode has Jimmy Kimmel back to his radio roots. As we mentioned, we we are the Strike Force 5. With the other guys joining in on bits and banter about everything from dropping your kids off at college to run-ins with even more famous people and an extended bit on pants. I have Anastasio Somoza's pants. Do you know who he was? The, the, the brutal dictator of Nicaragua who was deposed by the Sandinista in the late 70s. <laughs> Do you know who I'm talking about here? Yes, tell the story slowly. Don't miss anything out. No one, <laughs> outbid, no one, no one outbid you on this? My mom Let's had them. According to the premiere episode, the late night hosts started hopping on a Zoom call regularly in the run-up to the writer strike and decided to do a podcast with proceeds going to their employees while they're out of work and not getting paid. Here's Seth Myers. Hey, I also want to say while we're uh, talking about our staffs over the course of this podcast, because... You know, we have uh, researchers, producers, writers, all these people. Uh, I think you're really going to feel their absence. Bill Carter, former New York Times TV reporter, author of two books on late night and current dues-paying member of the WGA, 
says the show makes sense, considering talk show hosts' talents are well-suited for podcasting. And they also get along pretty well, which is kind of atypical for the history of late night. Something John Oliver brings up in the podcast. Would, would it be fair to say that in 2008, the host didn't get along quite as well as we do? I know it's an incredibly low bar, but that was a sequence of dying marriages. <laughs> Back in the 2007-2008 writer's strike, the late night shows found their own ways to support their staff. Here's Bill Carter again. Letterman owned his own show. So he made a separate deal with the writers, and that got him back on the air. It's the uh, category tonight, Demands of the Striking Writers. Oh. Demands of the Striking WGA Writers. And here now... And once he was back on the air, the other late night guys were like, hey, you know, this is nuts. Why is he on the air and we're not? And with the WGA's blessing, those shows came back without writers as a way of helping keep afloat the rest of the staff. Strike Force 5 is slated for 12 episodes, but it's anybody's guess how long the writer strike will continue. Andrew Limbong, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR this evening. Still to come on, on Marketplace at 6.30, toys and games were among the largest contributors to consumer spending on goods this month. So what have people been buying from toy shops? Marketplace starts at 6.30. It's now 6.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. It was a mixed show on Wall Street for this final trading day of the month. The Dow dropped about a half percent. S&P fell less than two-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq gained a bit of ground. It was up a tenth of a percent. This was the worst month of the year for the Nasdaq. A high surf advisory is in effect until 8 tonight for the Cape and Islands and much of the South Coast. The National Weather Service says large waves will make swimming and surfing pretty dangerous could also lead to localized beach erosion. Today's anniversary comes on the advisory, that is, comes on the 69th anniversary of Hurricane Carol. Carol made landfall in Old Saybrook, Connecticut in 1954 as a Category 3 hurricane. It brought a storm surge of more than 14 feet to New Bedford and left Providence in about 12 feet of water. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. Should be a moonlit night tonight. Cooler temperatures dipping to the mid-50s. For tomorrow, a lot like today, should be sunny with highs in the mid-70s. Weekend should bring more sunshine. Could rise to 81 degrees on Saturday, then Sunday and Labor Day Monday, possibly in the mid to upper 80s. This is 90.9 WBUR, 72 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. 
Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Early in 2022, right after Russia invaded Ukraine, a wave of arson attacks hit military recruitment centers in Russia. Then last September, when Russia began mobilizing its reserve forces, came another round of attacks on draft offices in the country. And then this summer, again, Russians have been trying to set recruitment offices on fire. In all, since the war began, there have been something like 150 such acts of protest in Russia, a figure we know because the independent Russian media outlet Mediazona has been tracking them. And we are joined now by Mika Golubovsky, the English language editor for Mediazona. Welcome back. Hi. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Let me start with the, this, the very obvious basic question of why? Why are people burning down recruitment offices in Russia? Well, you know, the motives are uh, versatile. I mean, at first, it was an emotional reaction of people who were opposed uh, to the war, and that's how they expressed their anti-war feelings. Then, after the first wave of mobilization, the so-called partial mobilization started, practical reasons were added because some people thought that by burning down uh, recruitment offices, they would uh, actually destroy the files and it will be harder to draft them to go and fight the war in Ukraine. There were financial motivations and... The last huge spike, which was just earlier in August, in in the very start of August, it was really chaotic and it looked more like a phone scamming. Uh, So people were lured by very, you know, elaborate schemes into actually preparing uh, a Molotov cocktail and going uh, to set the recruitment office on fire. A phone scam campaign organized by who? Uh, that is not completely clear. I mean, there are various hypotheses uh, on this part. It could be uh, it could be Russian secret services in some cases. It could be anti-war activists. It could be Ukrainian secret services, perhaps. But that we don't know for sure. We do know that uh, the FSB, Russian secret ser- service, and Russian police are prone to framing people by various and elaborate ways, and it could be one of those. So you're telling me this could actually be Russian security services paying people to attack Russian military recruitment offices in order to frame them so they can prosecute? Yeah, maybe not paying per se, but promising pay, yes, yes. We know of a case in Yaroslavl where a young woman was... uh, they're now charging her with attempted arson, although she didn't actually do anything. And provocation by the security forces seems, looks like very, very plausible in this case. And I'm pretty sure it's not the only one. Does the Kremlin acknowledge these attacks? Do they comment on them at all? I mean, they comment on each individual attack not the Kremlin, but like local authorities or security forces, they do comment on it, but no one acknowledges uh, 
this to be like a movement or anything like that. Because, you know, the Kremlin's narrative is that all Russians support the so-called special military operations, support the war, and uh, acknowledging that just the, the, the sheer amount of it would uh, raise a lot of questions about people's, you know, feelings about what's, ha what's happening. I want people to know, Mika, that you um, you are able to speak freely with us today because you are not in Russia. You're in yeah. Lithuania. Is your site as Mediazona still blocked in Russia? Yeah, it's it's constantly being blocked. I mean, the, our mirror sites are constantly being blocked. I think it's uh, we have over 180 mirror sites now, but people do get access to our reporting in Russia on social media, on Telegram, on mirror sites and that kind of, with uh, VPNs and that kind of stuff. Do you still have staff reporting in Russia? Uh, some, yes. Uh, but we definitely wouldn't want to disclose like their names, <laughs> you know, because it's really, it's, it's, it's dangerous. Understood. That's Mika Golubovsky, English language editor for the independent Russian media outlet Mediazona. Speaking to us today from Vilnius, Lithuania. Mika, thank you. Thank you. Many school districts across the country are facing staffing challenges for teachers, school nurses, and mental health counselors. To fill the gap, Texas passed a law that goes into effect tomorrow. It allows members of the clergy to volunteer or be hired as school counselors. Several religious groups oppose the move, saying chaplains lack the mental health and other training that's required. From member station KERA in Dallas, Bill Zebel has our story. The new Texas law lets unlicensed chaplains act as school counselors as long as school boards approve it. The need has only gotten greater following the COVID-19 shutdowns. In Texas, there just aren't enough counselors. While the recommendation is for one counselor for every 250 students, that's according to the American School Counselor Association, in Texas, it's one for every 400 kids. Texas Representative Cole Hefner, a Republican, co-authored the bill. I think we need to give our school districts every tool that we can in the toolbox with all that we've been experiencing with uh, mental health issues and catastrophes and crises. Texas school officials say they've seen a rise in depression, anxiety, and overall stress in students. Chaplain Kathy Burden testified in favor of the bill earlier this year. The co-pastor of Kingdom Life Church in North Texas says clergy have the moral authority to help children in need. Why do we need chaplains in schools? We have a decline in moral values, and there are no absolutes anymore. We are dealing with traumatized students who have no access to crisis interventions. Burden is also chief ministry officer with the International Fellowship of Chaplains. Chaplains are trained to deal with grief and loss, recognize students that are traumatized, help those that are depressed, and also recognize addictions. But Jill Adams, president of the Texas School Counselor Association, says that's not necessarily true. Chaplains may not have any mental health training. All the school counselors Adams leads have master's degrees in the field, they're licensed, they're certified, and she says they're trained in child development and counseling. Chaplains do not have any type of credential or certification that would give them the ability or capacity in a standardized way to say that they are qualified to support students' mental health needs. Sherry Allen agrees. She's a cantor in Fort Worth Synagogue Macomb Shalanu. As a chaplain myself, I oppose school districts employing chaplains in place of licensed school counselors. We are not qualified to do that kind of work. Under 
this new law, school districts could allow chaplains to serve as students' first point of contact for mental health support or suicide prevention. Chaplains are not trained to do that at all. Allen was one of more than 100 Texas clergy who signed a letter opposing chaplains serving as school counselors. She says chaplains are trained to offer religious and spiritual advice, and that does not belong in public schools. She's also concerned about LGBTQ students approaching a chaplain whose religion doesn't accept them. And she worries some chaplains might start proselytizing. Local school boards now have six months to vote on whether they want chaplains in their districts as counselors. For NPR News, I'm Bill Zebel in Dallas. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Global warming is contributing to toxic algae blooms in the lakes of New England. Tomorrow afternoon on WBUR, the disruption caused by the bacteria in one pond on Cape Cod. Join us again tomorrow. Sumner Tunnel in Boston is set to reopen tomorrow morning after a two-month shutdown. And that means the MBTA's Blue Line will no longer be free. Blue Line commuters have had free rides since early July when the tunnel from East Boston to downtown closed as part of the Sumner's restoration project. As of tomorrow, fares and parking rates will be back to normal. It's 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Release Wellbeing Center in Boston and Westboro. Experience their massages, facials, cold plunge tubs, steam rooms, and more during their membership drive September 8th to 10th. 